Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is talking to Franz Hochstrasser, co-founder of Raise Green. They talk about Franz's years in the Obama State Department, his role in coordinating the Paris Agreement, and his newest venture, Raise Green, which is making investing in clean energy projects available to investors of all sizes. Let's get right into it on The Solar Podcast. Well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the Solar Podcast. Thrilled to have Franz Hochstrasser with us. I'm going to certainly have him give a a little bit of his bio, uh, but just reading off of the cliff notes and also from a a reliable LinkedIn page, uh, he's a lecturer at at Yale. He uh, also received a master's degree from the same university. Um, He uh, has a master's in engineering management, but but with an emphasis, and I think why our our listeners are going to be particularly interested to hear about, with an emphasis on sustainable finance and clean energy and business. Um, More recently, he's both an entrepreneur as well as the CEO of a really fantastic and exciting company that we're going to want to hear a lot about, and we're certainly going to spend a lot of time on that. But uh, Franz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dave. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So I know that you have kind of a long background in spending a lot of time in politics, at least on the peripheries, but I'd love to get, if, if you wouldn't mind just diving into it a little bit with our listeners uh, about your background, starting maybe early days and then working on into where you are today. I think we're going to spend the majority of our conversation talking about your kind of current uh, projects that you're working on, but uh, we might have to, to pause and take, take some time on, on how we got there. Certainly. Well, happy to, to go back in time a little bit here uh, to, to move forward. And, uh, you know, today is, is election day. Uh, it, to me, holds special meaning for, for multiple reasons. Um, and I, I've spent about nine years of my life uh, working for Barack Obama, uh, starting out as a, a lowly, uh, hope-filled field organizer back in Iowa in 2008, knocking on doors, making phone calls, and uh, working to build a list of supporters uh, and then get them to vote on election day. Um, so that that community organizing really has put inclusivity and democracy kind of at the at the core of my uh, value set and has has driven my professional uh, career ever since. Um, and and thankfully, we did win that election back in two thousand and eight. It was historic for numerous reasons. And I was very fortunate to be on a staff call the following day with the president and the vice president elect. Um, and Joe Biden actually said on the call, you know, to all you field organizers and, you know, all you staff out there, if you want a place in Washington, we've got one for you to come and you know, deliver on the change that you've been working on. Um, and to me, that was the first time I thought about uh, going into government. Uh, but, uh, you know, eight years later, I was leaving uh, the Obama administration, having worked for uh, the Department of Agriculture the uh, White House Council on Environmental Quality, and also the U.S. State Department to help negotiate the Paris Agreement. Uh, so that trajectory really was like being strapped to a rocket and riding it all the way to the moon um, and uh, came out the other side with a whole set of passions as well as uh, motivations uh, to really ensure that we transition our economy as quickly as we possibly can, but also in a way that is uh, equitable uh, to the low carbon solutions that are necessary to tackle the climate crisis. So uh, that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time. W- w- I think when you originally started campaigning with Obama, uh, w- were you as passionate then about climate and and uh, 
and the climate crisis uh, as you are today, or has that kind of changed and molded over over time? Well, you know, as a, as a young person, I was uh, I was very excited about working in politics, um, and particularly for um, this transformational leader um, who has you know leveled us up as a nation in so many ways um, and made us sort of pursue our higher ideals. Um, and at the time, I had um, some experience uh, coming out of the environment program uh, at the U- University of California, Santa Cruz, um, of looking at environmental issues and also working um, for a business while I was a student um, that did environmental planning consulting. So that was really the issue that I sort of uh, dabbled with at a younger age, but um, it was just more excited about electoral politics at the time. And that really crystallized over the course of the campaign and then ultimately service in government uh, to become a career in uh, climate and clean energy. Yeah, I'd love for you to, you, you talked about um, the work that you had done specifically around the climate crisis for the Obama campaign. Like, to what level were you involved with that effort? Yeah, as a, as a campaign staffer, um, I was involved only in the the uh, the, the sort of front lines of, of organizing. So literally, you know, we would make phone calls from uh, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. every night. Um, and then the next day we would organize our lists and um, we would go and knock doors. Um, and we would spend most of that time recruiting volunteers. So it was all very, uh, very uh, electoral organized or, or electorally oriented and not oriented towards working on policy in any way, uh, particularly um, in my campaign days. It wasn't until I got to uh, D.C. and moved to uh, moved into working on the Recovery Act and reinvest- Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which is the previous largest climate investment in U.S. history, $90 billion out the door um, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that I really started to wrap my head around these, these issues um, in a meaningful way. Yeah, and so then you worked at the State Department and you became the point person, and this is the part I'm, I'd love for you to kind of dive into a little bit, but you became the point person for setting up meetings that ultimately led to the Paris Agreement. What, 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 what did that specifically entail? Yeah, um, so, so and also, you know, noting that this is the first week of COP27, uh, the 27th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. I've said it a few times before. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, th- this is the process uh, that I was deeply, deeply involved in um, while working at the State Department under uh, Special Envoy for Climate Change, Todd Stern, and ultimately uh, Secretary Kerry. Um, and by the time we got to Paris um, in December of 2015, um, you know, we had been working on getting this agreement uh, to to be closer to being finalized and ultimately to finalizing it there at the at COP21 um, for really, you know, the past eight years, uh, because it started with COP15 um, in Denmark. And and so I, I swooped in uh, in 2014, started at the, at the State Department. And by the time we got to Paris, um, I was in a position where I was coordinating all of the U.S. delegation meetings, bilateral meetings, um, with the ministers on the other side. So you know, the Minister of Environment from South Africa, um, you know, the, the COP presidency, Laurence Tubiana, and many of the other foreign leaders and dignitaries that 
John Kerry was sitting down with, that President Obama was sitting down with, and that uh, my my immediate boss, Todd Stern, was sitting down with. Wow. And at some point, was it during that time or was it uh, post Barack Obama that you went back to school at Yale to get your master's degree? Yeah, it was it was afterward. Uh, that was my uh, my walk in the woods after uh, spending <laughs> giving the government my 20s. Uh, so I, I actually mailed my BlackBerry and iPad back to uh, the State Department from my first day of classes um, at, at uh, the Yale School of Environment. So uh, that was my, my uh, post-administration life uh, and an opportunity really to reinvent what I was and what I could contribute to uh, the, you know, the, the climate movement. Um, I came out of the experience of having worked in government with two main kind of motivations. One was that I had seen over the last eight years that finance really was the biggest blocker for progress, uh, whether it be globally or locally, in deploying climate solutions. Um, so I knew we had to scale up finance immensely. Um, at the time I was leaving the government, um, there was an estimated $300 billion a year flowing into climate solutions. Um, now there's an estimated, you know, eight, $800 billion to a trillion. But as many of the leaders at COP27 this week are starting to say, we need something in the order of $3.5 to $6 trillion per year flowing into the space. Um, so I wanted to work on that um, very intensely. But the second thing was that we need more people involved. So um, you know, the talent pools that were working on climate back in 2015 needed to expand exponentially to draft a whole host of new, uh, you know, brilliant people uh, from tech, from, you know, manufacturing, from, um, you know, services and sales and marketing um, in every sector of the economy, ultimately, that needs to transition to low carbon solutions. So, Anyway, I answered more than you asked, but I think the, uh, you know, those two motivations in leaving government are, are what led me uh, to direct my studies toward sustainable finance and ultimately to uh, found Raise Green. Yeah, you've said previously that one of your passions, uh, at least I've seen you've said, is solving the climate crisis. There's two things I want you to do. One of them is to help uh, help us define what the climate crisis is. But secondarily, uh, I want you to talk about par as part of the transition from working on these problems at the highest levels, uh, you know, from the political sector, to now working on them at, at a more grassroots level with your existing project that you have, which is Raise Green. We're going to talk a lot about that. But maybe um, if you don't mind just talking about for our viewers, help us to define as, as, as you see it and perhaps as a lecturer, uh, at Yale, how you might define the climate crisis. Sure. I um, haven't been asked to explain that in a while, but, um, you know, at its base, um, our society runs on uh, fossil fuel driven machines for the most part, um, whether that's, you know, the, the gas boiler that most of us have in our, uh, you know, in our, our closet um, or the electricity grid that uh, predominantly and historically has run on um, coal and natural gas, um, and those those sources, uh, or the you know the automobile that we drive that runs on uh, gasoline, um, those sources of energy um, lead to carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions specifically. Um, 
uh, of, of various types. So it's not just carbon, it's also um, hydrofluorocarbons, which we've just got a major uh, amendment passed to the Montreal Protocol uh, to, to address that called the Kigali Amendment. Um, but but uh, it's predominantly CO2 that uh, gets caught in the atmosphere and um, leads to uh, uh, the greenhouse effect um, heating up the planet. And, you know, over the course of the past, uh, really since the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s, uh, we have, as a society, because of those greenhouse gas emissions, heated the atmosphere to the tune of about uh, 1 to 1.2 degrees uh, Celsius. Um, and uh, the estimates now are that um, if we don't act urgently to completely effectively cut off our carbon emissions um, in the next eight years or so, but according to the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, we very well may find ourselves exceeding uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming globally and find ourselves in a, a circumstance where uh, the floods and the droughts and the hurricanes and the uh, uh, other extreme weather events that result from uh, climate change uh, begin to, to become irreversible. Uh, so that's, that's what we're trying to avoid and that's the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah, so the IPOC report that you're referencing suggests that we have a fairly small window where we can actually make an impact, uh, where the where the where the the temperatures become um, essentially irreversible. At least there would be little that humans could do to intervene to 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 reverse it. I think is the suggestion there. So, uh, with the with the problem well defined now, uh, you worked on it again politically at the highest levels, and now working on it on a more of a grassroots level. Tell us a little bit about how you sort of transitioned out of the out of the political sphere and now uh, doing what you're doing and maybe as a that's a good segue to introduce your your, your existing passion project certainly so going into uh, cop 21 and the paris agreement uh, being the result of that with all 196 nations adopting um, the very first durable uh, ambitious and uh, uh, flexible framework to address the problem collectively uh, countries hadn't come around to that level of specificity about what the problem was, how to deal with it, and um, what needed to be done in order to, to tackle it. Um, and so when that happened, um, it was a tectonic shift because um, it really laid the groundwork for countries to organize themselves with their nationally determined contributions, but then more importantly for all of the supporting civil society cities, states, uh, companies, faith-based groups, um, you know, NGOs, uh, to also reorganize themselves toward implementing against those big targets that the government has and that, or, or that governments of the world have. Um, and so to me, that was like, hey, this is a tremendous business opportunity um, for us to do this, but it's also, you know, a moral imperative that those of us uh, particularly who have you know, benefited from historical uh, advantages, um, you know, work on solving this problem together. Um, and so, you know, 
that led me again back into school with those two main things wanting to get more people involved wanting to get more capital flowing into climate solutions um, and that's where i uh, found a co-founder um, and launched raise green um, and raise green is a climate investment platform it uh, already has thousands of members who are investing as little as hundred dollars and as much as our largest investors half a million dollars um, directly into clean energy projects at the local scale, like solar on a school, um, or into climate tech companies uh, that are, you know, some of which are building uh, the breakthrough technologies like low carbon plastics that are going to help us decarbonize uh, industry and those harder to abate sectors of the economy than, you know, the energy or transportation uh, or building sectors. And what's the, uh, I mean, outside of the, the, the moral imperative, what's the incentive that the investors have to be part of the platform, the thousands of investors that you have as part of the, the, the Raise Green platform? Yeah, well, this is where, um, you know, I go back to one of the things I, I learned at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communications, which is, um, you know, people often think that the most motivating human emotion is fear. And oftentimes, you know, I will ask a crowd of folks, what do you think it is? And fear is always the answer. Um, but what the, the YPCCC found is that actually pride is the most motivating human emotion um, if we can draw it out of folks and give them you know, something meaningful. So what I, what I think uh, about from the standpoint of Raise Green is we're trying to give everybody an opportunity to put their money where their heart is, um, own a piece of the clean energy infrastructure or a company that's going to build it, uh, and be proud of you know, benefiting from that transition to clean energy and, and to low carbon uh, and climate resilient society. So not only can they feel good about assuaging their climate anxiety, which many of us increasingly have, um, but they can also make money while they do it. Um, so that's, you know, hopefully a double whammy win-win that everybody can get behind. Maybe you can give the elevator pitch if, if an investor were, um, you know, interested or considering raise green. Is this uh, is it a fund model where I, as an investor, would be able to put um, my hundred to half a million dollars in, um, and then have it ride along others, or is it where I get to choose individual investments based on um, the merits of any individual investment? Uh, no, so so you it's the latter. You would get to choose what you put your money behind, um, and and that's where I think it becomes really exciting because. We have folks, you know, who are are building solar projects in low to moderate income neighborhoods on the rooftops of schools. Um, we have folks that are, um, you know, uh, building uh, lead company or uh, industry leading climate tech businesses to deploy more energy efficiency for uh, multifamily housing. And you can pick, you know, and we also work with one of the largest and the first green bank in the U.S., the Connecticut Green Bank. Um, to issue green bond certified uh, notes. Um, so of those options, you know, you as an individual investor can pick what story and what investment type um, you're most excited about and put your money directly into that project. Um, so, you know, we, we think that leads to 
uh, again, the ability to feel proud about what you're putting your money into um, and really uh, you know, invest with your values. And do these investments, are they typically like a debt instrument where you're issuing loans that are ultimately paid back with a coupon or is it more of equity investments? Is it a, is it a combination? How do they usually, uh, what's the operation usually look like for the uh, financial instruments? Yeah, great question. We have offered now uh, virtually every imaginable type of security. Um, and when I say security, I mean either a debt instrument or an equity instrument. Um, so we've sold about 80% of the investments that we've had are debt, um, which means that you know they pay out at a fixed rate over a fixed period of time. And then the other 20% are sort of equity style offerings, uh, some of which are venture uh, you know, venture deals with simple agreements for future equity or convertible notes that, you know, would turn into equity once that company does uh, qualified financing down the line. So that, that must create, a, uh, I mean, because of all the different financial instruments you're using from a regulatory perspective, there must be a lot of complications with that. How do you uh, bring, you know, uh, someone that wants to make a small and minor investment in, that wouldn't necessarily meet the the reg D or the sophisticated investor uh, SEC requirement. How how are you sort of managing through all of the regulatory parts of of being able to put these investments together? Yeah, that's a, a great point, Dave. And it, you know, to to me, it um, it comes down to thinking about and using uh, the tools that that we have available um, to open up access to investing as well as open up access to capital formation in a way that, you know, historically has been barred. So 90% of Americans that are not wealthy, who don't make more than 200,000 a year or have more than a million in net worth, up until 2016, they could not invest in private companies for the most part. Uh, That all changed in 2012 with the Jobs Act uh, that President Obama signed into law. And then uh, the SEC's finalization of regulation crowdfunding. Um, And that is what we use at Raise Green to enable non-accredited investors, the the 90% of Americans who are not rich, to invest directly into private companies. Yeah, so it's a crowdsource model. And um, they're able to go to the platform, look through different investments and make strategic investments on their own. Do you offer any um, assistance for people that are looking to make investments or how does, how does the platform handle those sorts of things? Um, so we are an, an intermediary that is responsible for uh, diligencing the projects, ensuring that they are qualified for, to sell securities in the eyes of the SEC and FINRA, which is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. There are regulators. And then also diligencing the investors, doing a know your mo- know your customer anti money laundering check on every investor, and then ultimately you know sort of consummating the transaction between investor and issuer. And so we do not provide financial advice. Um, we can't provide financial advice based on our uh, registration. And so it really is useful for anyone who's thinking about investing. Uh, you know, read our blog, read our frequently asked questions to get educated about what the options are. And then ultimately, if you want advice, you know, consulting a registered investment advisor or a money manager, you know, as you add raise green securities to your portfolio, 
um, is certainly something that is a good idea. Yeah. And in terms of how you uh, decide whether or not as an intermediary, an investment meets the minimum regulation requirements to be a part of the platform, do you also provide help in pricing the security or in pricing the debt or the coupon? Or do companies have uh, complete liberty to do that on their own? Yeah, um, we we, uh, we like to say that uh, we, we provide three things to the companies. So we, we give them the ability to set their own financing terms, um, so the flexibility to do that, um, the ability to have you know credibility behind their raise because they're using an SEC and FINRA registered platform, um, but then third, you know, to really access customers in a way that um, to turn them into raving fans and investors, or turn them into investimers, as some people are calling it in the in the crowd investing industry. Um, and you know we work with them to structure the deal uh, to price the security appropriately based on the market. Um, my co-founder uh, is and our chief investment officer, Jackie Logan, has background of twenty plus years in capital markets. Uh, came to us from Goldman Sachs, thankfully, um, <laughs> and uh, so we keep a, our finger on the pulse of both the debt markets as well as uh, you know the early stage venture financing markets. Uh, to ensure that uh, you know we we are giving all of the services that we possibly can to make sure that uh, entrepreneurs who are heroically trying to solve this climate challenge uh, have all of the best information and and can make uh, the right uh, come to market with the right price and an appropriate security type. Yeah, could you, do you have some examples of some successful investments that have happened? And when I say successful, I'm talking about projects that have. Uh, been financed through your platform that um, have been have come to fruition and 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 enjoyed a measure of success. Yeah, definitely. Um, we we we've got a handful of them now. We've done about twenty securities offerings um, over time. So a couple that I would would highlight. Um, one was an early stage financing for a water filtration company. Uh, they built this really awesome uh, tap water filter for the developing world, um, and. When we started working with them, you know, they hadn't even finalized their prototype, but now they're actually out in market selling these things at an affordable rate uh, to end users in Guatemala and helping them purify their water and solve their uh, water security issues. So that's a really um, exciting uh, one that I always like to dip back into. It's called Ola Filter. Um, you can check them out. Um, and then another one, you know, very high profile company now is called Block Power. Um, and we worked with them uh, to raise actually close to $3 million um, through a debt security um, that we worked to structure with them uh, that goes to a portfolio of energy efficiency upgrades on multifamily housing projects. Um, and then we've also worked with um, you know, the first black woman founder of a community solar prod, uh, company in the U.S. Uh, to help her raise uh an initial round as well. Yeah. So this is called the Solar Podcast. So I might ask you to dive a little bit more into what other types of solar projects um, have come across the platform. Certainly. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we, we have done uh, everything along the life cycle of a solar project. So um, everything from development capital, which that, that one I just mentioned um, really was predominantly development capital, which means, you know, very early on, um, a company taking 
money and using it to um, you know, take the next step in the project, whether it be uh, you know uh, interconnection applications or uh, design and, and construction phases. Um, we've also helped with construction phases of, of projects. Um, you know, an alternative to a, a bank-driven construction loan. Um, and then, you know, once the project is built, um, we've done a refinance uh, of, a, of a solar project, about a 500 kilowatt solar project out of Vermont on a school um, for the developer to take capital out of the deal that was already built and generating electricity and selling at a, a discount to that school and put that, uh, that uh, new money back into developing new projects. Yeah, so I would imagine that's kind of a longer term investment uh, note. What what is the gen- typical duration for an investment uh, that's done on your platform? Yeah, so so on debt, um, we've done everything from a one year note uh, that has you know yields that uh, we peg off of the the U.S. Treasuries. Um, you know, clearly they have a premium because they're more risky, um, and I actually can't quantify risk. Um, as a non, so the, none of this is investment advice, but uh, we've done a one-year note, um, we've done a three-year note, we've done five-year notes, and we've also done seven-year uh, preferred equity, which kind of acts like a debt instrument and pays out on a fixed rate, and then a 12-year note, which was which was the block power note. All right. So you've been doing this for five years now. I would imagine there's been a couple of uh, bumps on the on the road. What what have been the biggest surprises that you've encountered as you've been running the business for the last five years? Oh, um, I think the biggest surprises have been how quickly the climate tech industry is growing. Uh, it is really exciting how fast it's happening, uh, and it's about damn time. Honestly, <laughs> uh, you can bleep that out if you need, but um, you know it's um, it's just astonishing. I mean. Um, you know, you look at climate tech from the VC perspective um, back around the time that I was at uh, at the White House, and uh, you know, it, it was in the order of a few billion dollars, maybe five to ten, at the peak of clean tech 1.0. Um, last year, it did sixty billion dollars into climate tech. This year, it's projected to potentially even double that. Um, so the money is starting to flow in from private sources. Um, and the companies themselves also are proliferating at a rate that, uh, you know, I think is, is genuinely shocking, um, and, and in, in all the right ways, cause it has to go that fast. In fact, we're behind still in terms of getting solutions out as quickly as, as the problem is intensifying, um, so yeah, that that would be the big one. But then you know, speaking from a, an operator perspective, as the CEO of the the business and also the chief compliance officer, um, I think that uh, you know this is more so. <laughs> I, I feel something that every founder probably experiences, but um, things just take longer than you want them to, uh, regardless. It seems like of what it is. Um, so, you know, staying assiduous and staying uh, uh, just dogged about uh, deadlines, um, 
I've really learned is is vital to to advancing anything in in an early stage company. So, having worked on both sides, do you feel like the biggest um, opportunity or areas for opportunity or the most critical areas are going to happen more on the political specter or more in the private arena in terms of trying to, you know, make the biggest impact against this climate crisis that we previously defined? Well, um, you know, I, I think governments. Um, are still the biggest single lever. And we, we see that here in the US um, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and the Chips and Science Act being you know, what could amount to 600 or $800 billion of federal spending um, flowing into the economy. But you know that six to $800 billion that's anticipated to come uh, from from those large chunks of legislation are projected by Credit Suisse, which they put out a an internal memo that got circulated um, and had a great piece written up on it in the Atlantic by Robinson Meyer. I would strongly recommend to anyone who wants to uh, pick up on this thread. That money is projected to leverage $1.7 trillion of private capital flowing into the space over the next 10 years. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it has to be both. They go hand in hand, but, um, you know, the private sector um, needs to get more aggressive about um, what it is, what, more aggressive and more uh, intentional about what it is doing to deploy uh, capital into some of the riskier technologies that we know are essential to reducing emissions and time to avert runaway warming. Yeah. So Raise Green recently raised its own investment capital as well. Did you use your network for raising that money or did you go to more traditional sources? Yeah. Um, well, oddly, you know, the FINRA rules don't allow us to sell our own securities on our own marketplace. Uh, that would be a nice thing to be able to do, um, but we weren't able to do that. So we raised from uh, we actually used an AngelList roll-up vehicle um, for part of it to allow for smaller dollar investors to come in, and and then you know raise the larger amounts uh, from uh, angel investors predominantly, um, and also some small VCs as well. So with that 1.7 trillion that you're talking about, that's flooding in as a result of the six or 800 billion dollars that's coming more directly because of the government lever that we talked about. Uh, what's the vision that you have for Raise Green in terms of how many of those dollars are going to be filtered your way? And what's the role that you think you guys are going to have over the next handful of years? Maybe you can give us a, a forward statement or a vision statement for wh where you see the business going. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we're, we're all about mobilizing more capital and mobilizing more people um, to make it an equitable transition so that the benefits of the investments that are happening today flow to as, as broad of a population as possible. Um, so, you know, by 2025, I mean, we, we intend to have a network of hundreds of thousands of investors and have mobilized a billion dollars in private capital um, to flow into those uh, types of clean energy projects and, cli and climate companies. Um, and, you know, I, I think about it, I, I love this sort of anecdote from uh, Warren Buffett where you look at the uh, S&P 500 or the largest uh, market cap companies 20 years ago, and then you look at the list of the largest market cap companies today, 
um, they're all different. Not a single one um, that's on that list today was was there 20 years ago. In 20 years, though, you know what will be the largest market cap companies in the world? Like I'd be willing to bet that it's going to be climate smart businesses that have worked to solve the climate crisis and developed and deployed um, the types of solutions that are necessary to reduce emissions, to grow the economy, to grow jobs in a way that it you know uh, really is going to be the industry of our lifetime. Um, so I'm excited about playing a role as uh, an intermediary to help activate the uh, on average 40% reduction in technology costs that come from the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits and make those more broadly accessible um, and, and profitable for uh, individual uh, investors that might just want to put 100 bucks into the, uh, the clean energy future. Yeah, so currently you're you're of the thousands of investors you have. You said the investments range anywhere from a hundred dollars to five hundred thousand. Is that do, do you expect that to change over time? Do you think it's gonna? Do you think you'll always have space for the hundred dollar investor? But will there be potentially opportunity for the much larger investor to be part of the platform as well? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, we we are intentional about democratizing access to the investments. That we list. Um, otherwise, we would be a private, uh, you know, private equity or a, or a fund model. Um, and and many folks who have started out with the idea of doing what Raise Green is have pivoted into those, uh, you know, potentially more lucrative, but less uh, equitable forms of business. And you know, that's totally their prerogative. Our mission and and uh, our commitment is to maintain uh, a position where we can broad, broadly offer securities to whoever wants to buy them. Um, so that's that's core to who we are um, and, and what we will continue to do for as long as we're, we're able. Yeah. What, what sort of advice as a lecturer and as, as well as an entrepreneur and spending, spending as much time as you did in the political sector, what, what advice would you have to others that maybe don't want to dedicate their lives at the level that you have to solving the climate crisis, but could still be involved. Where, where, where do you tell people to start? I think that's always a difficult conversation is, is the problem feels so big. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, so three quick stats maybe to answer that question. One, one would be, you know, 85% of individual investors as polled by Morgan Stanley want to invest in sustainable options. And 99% of millennials polled also want to invest in sustainable options. The third stat is that 91% of human adults on the planet today have a smartphone within arm's reach every hour of every day of their lives. Uh, and so putting those together, I would say that you know, making it easy for anybody to take action in a way that is as simple as a couple of minutes on your smartphone uh, picking a project that looks interesting to you and putting a hundred dollars in really is is why Raise Green exists and and something that should be accessible to whoever it is that uh, that even thinks about this just occasionally for an hour a week or something. But but yeah, I mean you know the 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 bigger step toward that would be that um, you know like, like you're doing, Dave. You know, helping spread the word. I'm um, using whatever talents that you have 
and that and whatever uh, skill sets that folks possess um, to work in climate, work on climate solutions. Um, we need everybody and anybody that cares about, uh, frankly, the stability of our society uh, in our lifetimes to get involved in, in this fight. And everybody has a role to play and can contribute significantly. Does Raise Green attempt to in any way uh, sort of offer any quantitative evidence of the impact that any of these investments might make in terms of decarbonization? Yeah, um, that, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, that, so we are, we're a member of the Partnership for Carbon Accounting in Financials, um, which is a network of the largest financial institutions of the world, as well as us as a teeny little speck on that, that map. So, so we, we are working on our disclosures under, under PCAF, but for the individual, you know, that's putting in a hundred bucks, um, we're also working to uh, deliver them a dashboard that allows them to understand exactly how much emission reductions they're causing with that investment. Um, right now, it comes in the form basically of a of an annual report that happens a year after um, an offering is completed, that we we work with the companies to file um, and kind of report out on progress. So, you know, working to make that more real time is something that's on our, our roadmap and something we are excited to provide because, you know, like we saw with Kiva, people love being able to follow, you know, what their money's doing. And, and the more that we can remind people, um, that they've put their money to something meaningful, the prouder they'll get of, of having done that. And the more likely they'll be to do it again. So how do you then vet whether or not an investment might meet the minimum standard for decarbonization to rise to the level of being an impact investment to be on the platform? Um, yeah, so, so we use what we call the RAISE model to assess that. First and foremost, the, the R is actually focused on revenue because particularly if it's a debt offering, we need to ensure that the company has the ability to pay back the investor um, at least or service the debt that they're, they're borrowing. But then on the impact side, um, we look at the ambition of the team. Um, so is the team equipped with the skill sets and knowledge in this sector and in on the technology that they're working on? Um, and then is the impact that they're trying to create both socially and environmentally demonstrable? So, you know, I know from my background that uh, deploying uh, distributed solar at the scale of, call it a megawatt, is gonna have varying impacts based on where it is in the country or this idea of you know, locational marginal emissions being something that is cause for variation in the amount of impact that a given project will have. But um, my team also now is trained in and has looked at around 400 deals in total. And so we've gotten quite good at, at uh, taking a quick input of data from the company, understanding are there scientific merits behind this? Um, you know, is it likely to result in the types of uh, impacts that are intended by the founder or the company owner. And, you know, do we feel good about that uh, from Raise Green's standpoint for who we are as a business and what we want to represent and offer to our investors? Because ultimately they're looking at us and, uh, and you know, coming to us because we represent ourselves as such. And so we, we hold ourselves to that standard as well. Great. 
And uh, of the 400 companies you've vetted, how many actual offerings have been on the platform so far? 20. 20 so far. That's amazing. Well, um, it's it's been fascinating to visit with you, Franz. I mean, I might just ask you um, in the, the last couple minutes we have together, um, what, what, uh, outside of Ray's green, uh, what, what gets you excited about solar in general question that I ask most, uh, most people that come on the show. Yeah, well, I'm a huge, huge fan of, uh, distributed generation, you know, the, the sort of puzzle pieces of the grid, um, which is this, you know, the most amazing, uh, machine that humans have ever built, uh, that allows us to draw electricity from, uh, wherever it's being generated at all hours of the day. Um, I think the the puzzle pieces that are represented by distributed generation are so fascinating because they, they totally flip the script on this uh, arcane model of uh, you know, generation and consumption, um, where the power companies generate and consumers consume, um, and allowing those consumers to become prosumers to generate their own electricity, feed it back into the grid, store it, um, you know, de- deploy it um, at their whims um, with energy management systems. Um, I think that the the FERC order um, two 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 is is tremendously exciting about what's going to happen to the grid and what it means for uh, those distributed generation developers, owners, operators, and investors. Um, you know, over the next. Uh, decade as as we seek to draw in as much uh, uh, clean electricity as possible and uh, share it abundantly. Um, so that's that's what has me uh, stoked right now. Franz, it's been absolutely uh, fascinating to to visit with you for the last hour. Um, I'm sure that there's going to be people that are interested in taking a look at some of the fantastic companies that are available for investment um, on your platform, as well as individuals that might say, hey, you know, I'm in the solar space. I actually think that we might be an investable business on the platform. What, where should they go and what should they do if they're interested in being part of your cause? Yeah. So, you know, if you're a founder and, and you want to raise a community round, or even if you just want to carve off a chunk of the uh, funding round that you're raising through private uh, VC sources and sell it to the crowd to let more folks invest in, own and benefit from your growth as a, as a business, um, or you're a clean energy developer and you want flexible capital on your own terms, come to Raise Green. You can sign up for a consultation. Um, we can get you up on the platform in a matter of weeks. Um, and then if you're an investor that's curious um, about things that you can do um, to put your money to work to make the world a better place and reduce emissions, go to raisegreen.com. Uh, we have a whole host of offerings at invest.raisegreen.com, which is our marketplace. You can browse them. You can ask questions. Um, you can join our investor days, um, or you can just sign up to our newsletter and we'll notify you as deals come up. Um, so we'd love to have anyone and everyone listening, uh, at least, you know, subscribe to our email list and, uh, you know, Keep keep making uh, keep making strides to uh, help us tackle this generational challenge. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I love to see the private markets trying to solve these big world problems. And and uh, you know the the, rea- the reality of it is is that any of us as individuals, this you know these really 
large problems. Sometimes they feel too big to solve. But the truth of the matter is it's the collective us that's going to be able to – are the ones that are going to make the biggest difference. And so it uh, starts with the individual. So fascinated – or fa- I'm, I'm thrilled, Franz, that you're, you're creating a platform that individuals can participate in that way. So thanks again for coming on. It's been absolutely fantastic and, and exciting to learn about your platform. I will certainly spend some time at invest.raisegreen.com. Uh, myself myself to take a look at some of those offerings as well. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for the signal boost, Dave. Uh, means a ton and the, the great work that you and your podcast team do uh, goes a long way. So uh, really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Thank you.